We live in an incredibly turbulent time. Or maybe it just seems that way because all the news from everywhere is at our fingertips. In any case, it's a time that feels disorienting, that feels foreboding. And many of us are responding to that uncertainty by grabbing onto ideas that stabilise us. Political convictions, party loyalties, racial identities, moral certainties about how evil the West is if you're on the far left or how threatened the West is by chaos and immigration if you're on the far right. Those certainties comfort us, but they get us nowhere. This is a space to challenge our certainties, to consider points of view that destabilise us, but that leave us more thoughtful and wiser and, yes, a little bit more uncomfortable. I'm so excited for today's show. I'm Josh Zepps. This is Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Zepps. And before we begin, let's just point to what a, an insane time this is politically, especially in the United States, looking down the barrel of perhaps the most consequential election, uh, the uh, certainly of my lifetime, I think. The, the original election of Donald Trump was a crazy event that has so many causes, we'll be pouring over it for decades and perhaps centuries. But for that accident to get vindicated and re-endorsed by the American people by re-electing President Trump would in some ways, I think, be even more devastating to American democracy than his original election, which, if he's a one-term president, can be written off as something haphazard or accidental. And for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice, to have just passed away, that incredible woman having led such an incredible life, now throwing into stark relief all of the partisan hatreds and the squabbles and the bickering and the lusts for power on both sides of politics, leaves one just feeling extremely disoriented, to to say the least. Uh, a lot of people are asking me on Twitter about what I think about the possibility of Democrats threatening to pack the court. In other words, it's not actually a very difficult thing to do to add Supreme Court justices to the court. You could just add another couple or another four if you controlled the legislature and the White House. And a lot of people are saying that if the Republicans manage to push through a third Trump-appointed Supreme Court justice in the final days before the election or during the lame duck session, uh, that Democrats should respond by promising to pack the court, increase the number of justices. And what do I think of that? I think that the only utility in doing something like that is if it's as a strategic threat in advance and it's a coherent and plausible threat. I don't think you get anywhere by retroactively ratcheting up the hostilities because you'll seem as capricious as the other side. They'll take it as uh, a uh, as the Democrats having gone beyond the pale, uh, regardless of whether or not that is a valid uh, representation of what's actually going on. It'll have enough currency that you're just going to enter a, a war of attrition where each side becomes more and more outrageous and more and more outraged. But I do think there's utility in do, in using it as a kind of a policy of mutually assured destruction, where if all the Democrats got on the same page at once and said, 
if you appoint a new Supreme Court justice in light of what happened with not seating Obama's pick, Merrick Garland, on the grounds that it was an election year, and if you then throw your own rule out the window, if you do that, we will do this. That strikes me as a way of de-escalating rather than escalating. But at some point, the Democrats have to say, if Republicans are going to continue to do everything that is within their power to maintain maximal control over the levers of government in the face of democracy, essentially, just using institutional and structural mechanisms to assert as much power as possible, then you do, as the Democrats, have to stand up to that. Anyway, that's that. Uh, On today's episode, we're not talking about politics at all. We're talking about something really interesting, which is mental health sounds a little bit boring. But when you couple the interior life of a person suffering a mental breakdown and an alcoholic addiction with levels of fame that most of us will never experience. You have a fascinating story, the story of Osher Gunsberg, who, if you're American, he's basically Australia's Ryan Seacrest. And at the time in his life when Australian Idol was the most popular show in the country, I should tell you where we first met, actually. My first job in television was as the host of of Idol Backstage, which was an online-only video addendum to Australian Idol uh, in uh, 2006, I want to say, which I think was season four. So the show was still the biggest show in the country. I was the, the monkey boy who would interview the judges before we went to air, who would interview the contestants, who'd play practical jokes on the, on the hosts and so on. That's where I sort of got to know Osher reasonably well to begin with. And if you don't know Osher, I mean, he is a very beautiful surfer looking, used to have long blonde hair, was very, it was very much the focal point of Australian broadcasting and really Australian culture at the time and continues to be a very successful television host. But what's interesting about this conversation, what I wanted to dig into was that while the sort of the cliche of the sad clown, while he was going through all, all of the heights of fame and celebrity and success internally, he was dying and battling uh, substance abuse issues. So we go there and we get into it and it is a bit uncomfortable. I won't say anything more except that I hope this is of some help because even if you're perfectly wired internally, the stresses of 2020 have thrown us all for a loop and put us all a bit off kilter. So it's worth remembering that no matter what's happening to you externally, uh, your interior life can still suck or be great, depending on how well we're able to manage our own experience of our own mind. Please enjoy this conversation with the one and only Osher Gunsberg. Do you not have me now? No, no, no. <clears throat> you do? No, I've okay. got you. You're doing great. Am I doing okay? Is it, how, what do you think of the interview so far? So far, things are pretty good, actually. I'm I'm pretty impressed with I'm pretty impressed with the angle, and I feel yep. I feel comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> good. No, this, is, this is working perfectly. Are oh, you doing great? What was that? Was that me or you? I'm playing sound effects. Oh, good. It happened at exactly the same time that I touched a button. That's good. Do you want to do? Do you want to do that throughout the? Throughout the show, I think it's I think it's important, you know. <laughs> uh, where are you? 
I'm in an apartment that the production has rented for me, that Warner Brothers has rented for me while I help them make um, The Masked Singer. I am in Melbourne. I am in mm. uh, stage four lockdown here in Melbourne. And um, in the absence of an actual studio, I have uh, reassembled the second bedroom. Uh, okay. <laughs> Let's just say all the years of doing uh, very important living room furniture fort work when I was here mm. have come in handy because the, the bed has been disassembled, the, the base of the bed's there, the top of the bed there, there's a various concoction of, of pillow yep. and a blanket, um, mm. but it's way less echoey than it was. The acoustics gods love you for it, but uh, perhaps the housekeeping don't. It's fine. Then the, they never need to know. The people that we rented this from never need to know that the bed's been, oh okay. The bed's been a lot of time on the wall. <laughs> in my in my brain, the life of Osha is just surrounded by a phalanx of helpers and assistants. Ah. So I assume that those people are just uh, mildly put out. No, by no, 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 no. your furniture fortress. No, but studio. I, I do work with. Um, uh, if you've done any work with uh, radio people in this time of COVID, never. Uh, no, if you were, radio people in this time of COVID, they have uh, there's like a team going in and building these unbelievable remote home studio situations for all their mm. crews because they can't bring their breakfast crews into work. Yeah, and I'm like, can't have send one of those guys around over here. That'd be great. I feel a bit that way. There are there are all kinds of things like like I was saying when you're when you're a person of a certain uh, preeminence in the industry, you are you obtain. Uh, a level of help and attention that perhaps your humble zepses of the world don't get, but I, you know, I, I hear, I hear, I hear tales of what some of what some people have. Right, and it sounds wildly impressive. Yeah, well, I've got a rented apartment mattress on a wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good for you. And what's it like down there? What do you? I mean, many of our listeners will be down there. So, and by the way, I don't know if you saw the tabloid press here in Sydney mm. recently saying what lockdown with uh, like telephoto lens, paparazzi style footage of regular Melburnians going about their business in parks, daring to leave their homes without even so much as like a radioactive suit on. Right. And there was a great deal of half and puff about what are these Victorians even doing? Is the lockdown being breached? What are you seeing? Reporter on the ground. Uh, well, I'm in the, I'm not in the suburbs, mate. Now I'm in the giant gleaming glass tower um, apartment block uh, area of the Docklands. So I'm down here. and Because um, I think the tabloid media was mostly focusing on places where there are a lot of people eating uh, Turkish pizza. And the the subtle implication seemed to be that these were your ethnics oh, who were up to no good. Yeah, so you wouldn't be, but you wouldn't paper, be associated. Are, are you telling me a tabloid paper was trying to vilify a non-white person, dropping dropping quasi-racist dog whistles? Uh, believe it or not, if they did. They did it. Yes, I don't. They did it. Or maybe they were just implying that ordinary Melburnians like to go out for Turkish gozlemi on a of a Saturday. Because let me tell you, it's delicious. Hey. Okay, okay. You you brought- it's like the Omega Man out there, mate. There is mm. the only people I see on the street are literally the army. There is army mm. on the street, and I have to carry my papers when I walk, uh, when I drive to and from work. Really? Yes, because I arrive home from work after curfew, and I need to carry my papers in case I am pulled over by the 
fuzz. Um, it's it's pretty intense, you know, but at, at the same time, I feel quite safe here in, in Melbourne. I feel incredibly safe at work. Thankfully, the production company I work for and um, the network I work for, Warner Brothers and Network 10, take it very, very, very seriously. And so everyone at work is, is a very intense um, COVID-safe protocol that we have. And mm. there is no back to what it was there is only this is what it is now and it will be this way. There is no magic bullet coming. Even if a vaccine arrived tomorrow, it's probably not going to be ready for us for a couple of years. So this is what it is now. And if we want to keep... Not a couple of years. Not a couple of years. Be a while. It'll be it'll be ready in... Be honest. Uh, be ready by 4.30. By when? By 4.30. Uh, on, the, on the day on which it's discovered, that's that's where my brain goes. No, See, no. I am I am eternal optimist. I think when it gets discovered, then it, they'll turn it around. They'll discover it at nine in the morning. It'll be ready for us by four thirty. And I'll be. Uh, but the truth is probably somewhere between the two. I think it could take a couple of months. But I think where you're right is that people expect normal, and at no point is are we going to be able to click our fingers and the entire world is going to get vaccinated and be well. Like even if you could, even even if you could produce seven billion doses of it in I don't know six months, there, there are a lot of people who aren't going to take it. There are a lot of people who can't afford it. There are a lot of you know yeah. public. There are a lot of governments that can't afford it. There are a lot of like. So what happens anyway? There's a lot of people that can't take it. Let's be honest. There's a lot of immunocompromised people that cannot actually take vaccines and actually require to rely on herd immunity. Um, yeah. uh, and 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 in, yeah, look it. The idea that we'll just kind of carry on and go to the pub like we used to, we're just going to have to understand that those days are gone and there is only a new way of doing things that will go from this point forward until something changes, which it probably- yeah, We've gotten pretty dark pretty quick, Osha. It's an uncomfortable conversation, but it's one that's important it's- to have. Yeah, but I talked to virologists about this stuff. Don't need you raining on the parade. Uh, I'm sorry, man. I'm, I'm sorry, but- <laughs> Look, I did ask you where you were and what Melbourne was yeah, like during lockdown. Well, so I suppose, I, you know, if you want to, go do you to, honestly do you think there won't be pubs again? That people won't be hanging out in pubs and shouting at each other in the face? It'll be. I don't think it'll be a long time before we will be able to safely do that. But that's not to say that to safely do that, it might be you need to speak into some sort of breathalyzer device on the way into the pub. Yeah, so some sort of breathalyzer device can pick up if you've got some sort of marker that shows you may possibly have a compromised immune system, which may lead could be COVID, could be something else. So they're like, "Have you invented such a breathalyzer device? No, are you revealing it on this no, show? No, but it's not to say that such a thing won't happen. And I think if you want to talk about uncomfortable conversations, I think we as a country very quickly are going to have to have the conversation of like, okay. We could fix all of this in a in a month if all of us kind of implicated a very intense contact tracing protocol using the phones that we have in our pockets. We could really figure this out to a point where we could have a lot of freedom back. But we are going to have to have that uncomfortable conversation with each other about how much are we going to give? What are we going to give it to? How is it going to work? Um, am I causing a big fuss about how much data I'm giving away when Google and Apple already know fucking all this stuff about me anyway and somehow I have, I'm have i fine with a private company knowing this stuff but I don't want the government to know about it? Well, private companies don't have armies and, and secret police. No, but they they will more than very happily pass that information on to the people with the, <laughs> to the armies and the right. secret police. Like, you don't, you I don't, suppose you don't, that's the question. Like, you don't think that the encryption keys to WhatsApp weren't, weren't handed over with a bit, without a bit of cash changing hands? Come on, man. <laughs> oh god now we're going to get into 5g oh no 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 i can't wait for that it's going to be great i really want my fridge to tell me when i need more soy milk <laughs> it's exactly. going to be awesome 
let's go back to a, a, let's. I want to start with some pivotal moments because I essentially want to talk to you about what it takes to be happy and how we can construct our, our brains in ways that are conducive to that since you have had the most, uh, of all the people I know, you would have to have the largest disparity between your outward appearance of happiness and the internal and the internal goings on. Yeah. Just because there was a period where you were the most uh, successful person in Australia outwardly and the most miserable fuck in, in Australia. Very, very, yeah, I was very, very ill. I was um, inwardly. Uh, that, so I just want to take, let's describe a moment to us, which is the, the grand final of the first season of Idol. Yes. Uh, and bring us back to, we're talking about 2003. Yes, sir. Uh, just put us there. You're on the fo- the forecourt of the Opera House. For yeah. people who aren't in Australia, Australian Idol was every bit as big in Australia as American Idol was in America, possibly even bigger. Yeah. I mean, it was a national phenomenon and the finale took place on, at the Sydney Opera House. Uh, and you, you write in, in your book, which is a, a fantastic book, which is back after the break, also has the greatest title. <laughs> of any year, I mean, his pun in the back after the break. Exactly, you write you write about like racing in from the outside into the interior of the Sydney Opera House during a musical break, and uh, what was sort of going on for you once that evening came to a close. Yeah, it was um, it was a classic case of like um, we just created this extraordinary piece of television working as a team, 160 or 185 people or something worked on that show with us and it was months and months and months of hard work and we pulled off this unbelievable landmark moment in Australian pop culture history. One in four adult Australians watched that show, um, which I don't think their numbers are. Their numbers are never going to get again Um, because it was before the internet, you know, and um, I felt like absolute shit. I felt like nothing mattered. I felt I hadn't achieved anything. I felt so completely, completely worthless. And that that actually was a high point when you think about how bad it did get. Like there was a point where um, years later when I was on the second series of The Bachelor, I think like 11 years later, I'm on the second series of Bachelor and I was proper like experiencing passive and active suicidal ideation, often experiencing episodes of psychosis which manifested as paranoid delusions having flashes and visions and hearing and seeing things that weren't there and it was really 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 awful and like when's that i'll show the third season of the bachelor when did that happen second series of bachelor 2014 and i'm right you know i'm i'm really sick and you know i'm my brain is constantly trying to convince me about you know here's a really good way to make all this stop here's a really good way out it was it was awful and yet on camera I'm like going, okay, then, like today on today's group date, we're going to have to, you know, you, you're going to have to play a game of football and whoever's the best gets to go and do a thing with the guy or whatever, you know, and it was, you know, because work was always fine because there was a bit of element of control and predictability and under, and, and, and there wasn't uh, the un, uncertainty that exists every moment outside of work. Um, but, yeah, man, I used to ride my bicycle from Bondi where I was living there to Hunter's Hill where the mansion was. It was about an 18K ride. And had I not had those two bike rides a day there and back, um, like those bike rides were just filled with awful visions and and fantasy about just swerving out of the road and, you know, getting stopping it all and like, and, and like seeing things and, you know, it was horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. Were you, were you still seeing a therapist and were you on medication at the time? I was seeing everyone and I was on everything. <laughs> um, well, you weren't on everything because presumably you hadn't relapsed into drinking. 
No, and I'm really grateful for that because I knew that it, I had been sober at that point by about four years, and I know for a fact that if I had if I had been drinking, there is absolutely no question in my mind that one night I would have just said fuck it, and I wouldn't be here right now. There's no question at all. Uh, the difficulty of that kind of decision uh, ranks very low against the kind of decisions that I used to make while drinking, as far as risk, uh, which had I had no problem making. So I can when I weigh it up. What guess, kinds of decisions? Oh, dumb things you do when you're drinking. <laughs> you think, well, I don't do I don't do anything dumb when I'm drinking. What do you do when you're drinking? Things that you think are a good idea um, but aren't. In sobriety circles, it's called getting a case of the fuckets. When you just go, ah, oh, fuck it. And that can go to like, fuck it, I'll just finish the entire tub of ice cream or fuck it, I'll eat the whole box of Tim Tams or oh, fuck it, I'll, I'm going to go out tonight or fuck it, I'll have another three shots or fuck it, yeah, I'll go home with this person or oh, fuck it, yeah, I'll go and try and walk across the railing of this bridge that doesn't have a guardrail on it. Fuck it, you know, just don't care. And there's no shadow of a doubt that if I had still been drinking when I was that ill that I would have I would have absolutely um, taken, I would have gone fuck it mm. and taken a step to make all the pain stop because I cannot underest I cannot underscribe under describe how relentless and punishing the pain of that kind of psychological uh trauma is it's literally the looping ruminating thoughts filled my body with a horror of dread like I'd stuck a fork in a powerpoint about every 5 to 10 seconds Let's get back to before that happens, though, because the interesting thing, of course, about mental wellness and mental fitness is that it's incremental. I think yeah. you know, part of the part of the problem about talking about this sort of stuff in public is that people think that uh, it's a it's an either or proposition, and then if they're not if they're not technically diagnosed as being as having a condition, they they sort of feel self judgmental. And I, when I say they, I mean me, yeah. feel self judgmental when I'm not when I don't have all my shit figured out yeah. um, because my brain isn't broken like yours and like family members of mine. Like I, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be cool. And yet that sense of empty emptiness and that sense of, of deadness and, and listlessness and yeah. sort of enemy that you you describe on the first night of idol yeah. um, that haunts all of us, I think. And anyone who's ever strived for anything and then gotten it and gone, all right, what now? Yeah can empathize with that regardless of whether or not they're diagnosed with something. So take us back before it got really, really bad when it was simply when it was simply seen by you through the prism of having a good time. <laughs> it was um, at the time it was um, I thought it was having a good time, but on uh, reflection it was uh, anesthetizing the anxiety that I had about um, and uh, with the exception of some days at Channel V where, you know, we were on air for quite a while and we may have had some sneaky beers on camera, I was never, never drunk on air. Um, it was, but the most. Never drunk on air or never drank before going on air? Never drank before going on air. I had a few beers on, secret beers on air a few times. It was a rock and roll channel. It was a rock and roll show. Um, never on any of those shows like Idol or anything. I never had a drink before the show. Never, 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 never. But the moment it ended, the Rev, uh, I've just finished watching the, an extraordinary com a documentary about Ferrari versus Ford at Le Mans mm. sixty, mm. And so like the, the Rev limiter of, of my brain to, to host live television, that is, you know, there's 600 people in the crowd, there's two point something million people watching at home. You've got to be out at, at 9.31 and six frames because that's when the Grand Prix starts. You know, you've, the, 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 the amount of things you have to think about at the same time, at the same time as try to find funny in moments that happen, 
you know, across a two-hour broadcast, your brain is at a, a it's spinning a lot. The flywheel mm. is going, and it takes a long while to slow down. Um, when you also add on top of that the adrenaline, the excitement, and the you know everyone's high fiving each other about how great the show was, um, a couple of glasses of red is just just does a great job of taking the edge off. But um, as I believe it was W. Axel Rose famously said, it, "I used to do a little, but the little wouldn't do it, so the little got more and more." Um, the drinking always. I was always afraid of being in a room with strangers, and beer or beer was a thing that made that feel easier. And as I did get into roles that had me more recognisable by strangers, the fear of those strangers became even bigger and a great antidote to that fear of strangers was to surround myself in a blanket of beer and it got to the point where I, you know, I'd, I'd often not leave the house um, for days and days at a time and if I did, it would only be with a couple of, you know, a couple of starters at home before I went out because I just couldn't face the stairs and I couldn't face the I mean, like what am I expecting I'm on a fucking show that has a you know <laughs> you know this is the job the job is that people will recognize you when you're doing your groceries that's the gig that's what you get paid for okay well what did you want that's interesting let's let's just rewind to what you actually wanted out of life uh you know when you were younger when you were in your teens what were your aspirations it was just it was really simple as everything was going to be awesome as long as I got on tv everything would be fine why did you want to be on TV well, if you didn't like being looked at? Oh, well, because what's anxiety for me? Anxiety is a lack of control. Anxiety is, is not knowing what's going to happen. Anxiety is no one. Everyone's talking. No one's listening to my voice. I'm unseen. I'm unheard. Anxiety is I have no control over the situation. When am I more in control than when I'm on stage? When am I more in control than when I'm on camera, on a live show, when I'm the one speaking? Wait, that makes absolutely no sense, Osha. <laughs> well, it's true, though. <laughs> to, the, to an outsider, to an outsider the, the unpredictability of live television is the ultimate uh, pinnacle of not being in control and of not knowing what's going to happen next. I mean, absolute, yeah. absolute serenity. I mean, I guess it's like Kelly Slater describing the perfect, you know, cut back at Chopu in this ten foot barrel of death over a reef, and he has the balls to turn the turn the board around back into the barrel and come back out again. There's three and a half seconds of his life would feel like complete bliss. When I think back to those moments of being on camera, particularly when I was in America, you know, and I'm on, I'm sober at this point and uh, I was, I was on a show on CBS doing a show called Live to Dance and there's a couple million Americans, like, like the entire audience of a whole season of Idol watched per show. Like it was fucking gigantic, right? Absolute bliss, complete silence in my head, all the noise, all the pain, all the fear, everything just stops in this moment. Um, and so I just chased that. I chased that feeling of of serenity that only happened when I was on stage or when I was on camera. And it's ultimately, you know, it's my coping mechanism becoming my career wasn't a great way to start it. It's very different now. Um, but that's basically what I was chasing. You know, I was chasing this moment. And I'm not alone. I've spoken to people, particularly stand-ups, who talk about this a lot. And they go, oh, yeah, I understand that. You know, I, I get the feeling everyone's everyone's got to be quiet so I can talk. And, uh, you know, mm. I chase this. I mean, I, I totally get it. I, I have that same experience, uh, and but I don't diagnose it the same way. It's, it, it, it strikes me that you might be retroactively sort of uh, imposing an ad hoc explanation for what it was doing when, when it might actually be unrelated. Like that sense of serenity that you get right in the moment when you're doing something really good, when you've put in Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours yeah. of work at it, you've done all of this hosting on Channel V, you know what you're doing, you're like, this is my moment, I'm here to shine. 
it doesn't necessarily make logical sense to me that that is contingent on having the type of personality that hates uncertainty. Um, okay, but that was that. I'm just trying to describe to so you. That's your your experience well, of it. Yeah, yeah, I've been asked about it, and I've come to the realization after a lot of you know kind of reflection and kind of questioning of myself of like, why did I want that? That's it. That's why I I felt you know so unseen and unheard and out of control. Um, that, right, unseen and unheard makes sense. Yeah, that, so that trying to find a place where, okay, you motherfuckers are going to have to look and you're going to have to listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before you were famous, did you have anxiety around strangers and did you not like people oh, looking yeah. at you and did you feel From awkward as around? Kid, as a tiny child, mm. I got sent to a psychiatrist at five. So becoming the most famous person in Australia was an interesting career choice. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know what happened. I don't know how it. I don't know. I don't know how that part happened. But so uh, let's talk. So let's just talk about a part of yeah. that. I think a part of it has to do with like anyone, as you mentioned earlier, anyone's. There's there's no great diagnosis. I mean, if you really want to break it down, there's a thing called the DSM, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, that is shared amongst psychiatrists and psychologists, and it was created as a way, basically, for say a psychologist in Brisbane is trying to have a conversation with a psychologist in. Birmingham uh, about a case they read about in Sweden and they're trying to describe the similarities of the patients they have to the case they both read about. It was basically just a common language that psychologists and psychiatrists could use to describe the things that they were seeing in patients. It's not like you've got a spiral fracture of your tibia. So if I have that and you have that, they're very similar, almost identical things, okay, versus, you know, what have, what have I got? I've, you know, I had one psychiatrist once described to me, it's like, you've got Osher syndrome. You've got a bit of yeah. this, you've got a bit of that, you're on the spectrum here, you're over here on there, but you're really great there. So, you know, there's no, what have I got? Give me the pill, then I'm better. It's not mm, like mm, that. Mm. Uh, everyone's got a little bit of something going on, but we have this desire to put things into boxes. So, uh, you know, I have been diagnosed with obsessive and compulsive disorder. I have been diagnosed with generalized anxiety and social phobia in the past. And those things come and go. You know, there's parts of the obsessional uh, and the ruminating anxiety that do stay with me. But, you know, when you asked about, you know, becoming the most famous person in Australia, I don't know if I am, but. Um, well, you were. I mean, you're, you're, you're very well known now, but there was a period in the early days of Australian Idol yes. where you had a very distinctive look. You were that cool guy. You had the long blonde hair, like Idol was the show. It, it was, as you say, before the internet. So nobody was tapping away on their phones when it was on. You sat down and you watched Australian Idol. Yeah. Um, um, so so the, uh, the obsessional part of it just meant that when other people who I had started in my career with, people who looked very similar to me, people who had the same background, the same skill set, probably had also come from radio, when they – I just tended to do the extra hours of whatever it was. I just tended to go like, I will outwork. I, w- I just don't know how to do anything but work and work on this, and this is exactly what I have to do and will do, and nothing can stop. And I'm like the fucking Terminator when I decide. Mm, so mm. while the OCD can be awful when the wrong kind of information or the wrong kind of obsession happens, it's extraordinarily handy when it comes to my career because I have a brain that just won't fucking stop until something's done. 
Jay Leno used to say that he would go to, you know, on a, on a cold winter's night, he'd go out to uh, to join the line of comics all waiting to get on it uh, at some comedy club. And, you know, gradually over the course of the evening, the line would thin out and people would just go home and they'd uh, stuff this. I'm not going to stand in the in the snow for four and a half hours waiting to, to try to see if I can win the lottery ticket of essentially getting some stage time at the end before the manager closes up the, the yeah. place. And he'd be like, uh, hey, it means you just got to wait around. Just wait around. Hey, success is uh, success is waiting. He's right. there's, some, there's something to that. It absolutely yeah. is. It's like um, my old manager uh, in LA, a bloke by the name of John Ferreter, he used to say, only you know how hard you've worked to make your dreams come true. And mm. he's right. You know, it's like say someone else got the big fancy radio job or whatever over you, Josh. You have, you're the only person who lies in bed at night that goes, did I do everything? Oh, actually, you know what? Mm. I didn't. I said no to a couple of those Sunday morning shifts when there were some pretty good times where I could have really proven myself against a politician. Yep. Makes sense. Again, exactly. okay, that person said yes. Okay, it makes sense. All right. Only you know how hard you've worked to make your dreams come true. And, and Reminds me of something that my dad says, which is that uh, once you're successful, nobody asks how long it took. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Once you've done the thing, yeah. nobody asks. Nobody goes, you know, and and if you did it quickly and it was no good and it didn't become successful, then nobody's going to be like, oh, that was fantastic. I mean, it, it sucked, but you did it so quickly. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing this thing at the moment in Melbourne. It's a show called The Masked Singer. It's a lot of fun. And talking with the dancers the other day, because I, I, I don't know if you realize, but um, I generally like to enter a room with a, full choreographed, a fully choreographed number that involves pyrotechnics and that's generally how I like to arrive here. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So Even if you just go to the supermarket. Yeah, oh, that's naturally. There's a bit of that. And so I was talking with the dancers during rehearsal the other day, and one of them was talking about how does that, this, that, and the other. I said, oh, well, you are, you're, doing, you're doing pretty good. I said, well, I hope so. I've been at this since 1994. And, you know, make no mistake, that's 25, 26 years, with an exception of being really unemployed around the age of 38. That's 26 years of working every fucking day. And at the moment, my my call is at nine thirty a.m. and I leave the studio at midnight, and that's the job, and that's what it takes, and that's what it's always taken. There is no show up to work for forty five minutes, do a thing, and go home, and you're number one. No, you you have to. That's it. That's what it takes. And if it's it's interesting that that you that you that you're talking about this as the craft that it is, because a lot of there is a it can be a little bit of a uh, it can be a bit frustrating for people in the television and radio presenting game that what you're doing basically just appears like being an affable kind of guy. <laughs> so a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, sure, you can do that, uh, whatever. And there's a, there's a period in, in your book where you talk about after the, the, the CBS show was cancelled after, after one season that you went back to LA and you realised that all the people who were getting cast as being hosts of these big TV shows were people who were already famous. They were, they were wrestlers. They were, you know, they were people who, they were actors or whatever. And the, the art, the craft, the skill of being a professional MC, presenter, host, person who can wrangle it all and be the be the ringleader was really being overlooked in terms of like who can who's going to get who's who's got a name that's going to get people to tune in for for five minutes do you how do you feel about that um yeah i remember i remember when i asked who got the i didn't mind if like if i if i lost the job to someone who was 
Um, I mean, it's a very, it's a specific set of skills, you know, I'm not Liam Neeson, but it's a, it's a very specific set of skills to hold down a live, um, either a radio show or a live television broadcast, the big shiny floor kind of wrangling all that kind of stuff. There's a lot to think about. And if it looks like I'm just coming out there smiling, twirling a microphone and throwing to a thing, um, you, you, you know, that's the old swan cruising along the top of the water. You just have no idea how much other shit's gone on and what's being yelled in my ear, what's, you know, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the cameras are, where the lights are, the performer's not ready, the performer is ready, we're changing with the order, whatever it is, you know. And if I lost the gig to someone else who had that skill set, I'd be like, okay, right, I understand. They just look one for something else. But when I, I think I was like a bronze medallion gymnast or something, I'm like, Oh, was there a specific show, was there? Oh, yeah, there was, there was a few. There was like two, two or three in a row where I lost it to um, I lost it to a, a wrestler, one wrestler and two athletes. There was two or three got gigs. I'm like, okay, that's it. I had to, and I had to pivot because I'm like, okay, they're not going to be hiring people like me anymore. I'm going to have to go do something else and just be in acceptance of that because. Did you think that your career was over? Um, I, yes. <laughs> Certainly my camera, my own camera career. Hmm. Um, this is after Idol, in other words. So you've yeah, gone to the yeah. States, Idol has finished. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you've done a season of an Idol-like show over there and then you're like, yeah. It's all over. But, you know, these things come and go. Big shiny floor comes and goes. And thankfully I'm I'm on another big shiny floor show right now and it's it's brilliant fun. It's extraordinary. And I uh, I come alive on a on a perspex floor with a jib camera to play with. It's <laughs> my, my, that'll that'll be on your tombstone. You came spirit. alive on a perspex floor. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, the, the the first night of Idol, um, two thousand three. Let's just uh, let's just wrap that that up then, and then we can keep moving forward because you write in the book that. Uh, you didn't feel proud or satisfied after it was all over. You know, the fireworks have gone off. Everyone's gone home. The confetti cannons have exploded. Yeah. Uh, it's the biggest uh, broadcasting phenomenon of your lifetime and you've presided over it all. And you say, I felt no emotion whatsoever. I just thought, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do now? Yeah. And you say that you went back to the the dressing room, which is this incredible palatial dressing room with floor-to-ceiling windows over the Harbour Bridge and a huge grand piano where Yehudi Menuhin and all these people have probably, you know, these these world-class conductors and performers have all been waiting to go on at the, at the Opera House and you just pull out some cocaine and start doing rack, start doing lines off this, yeah. this piano. Yeah. And all I did was feel even less. I felt completely numb. I felt nothing, you know. I thought, well, you probably felt good for about seven minutes and then, and then I think started descending. Talk about myself a lot. Um, yeah, and that's and that's it. And, and that you know, I'm not the first nor last person to, you know, what can I chase now? I'll, I'll chase this. You know, I'll, I'll put drugs up my nose and beers down my throat, and trying to trying to feel anything, trying to feel anything at all. Um, and were you surprised that you felt dead? Yes, because all the everything that I've been fed at that point had been. You know, if you make enough money, get big enough ratings and have a sex with enough people, finally everything will be fine. And it wasn't. It was worse. There was nothing at the, at that point. And I'm like, well, that, what, what the, what? I did all the things that I was supposed to do, mm. that I thought I was supposed to do, and none of it is there. And and since I guess Josh, what can what I can tell you is that in sobriety and in getting a lot better and trying to find a, a way back to a healthy way of of thinking about the world and and trying to heal my brain and those neural pathways that jumped to horror and doom so quickly, um, you really only have happiness 
when your day has meaning and you are in acceptance that all you really have is this very moment. There is no happiness when an outcome is achieved. There are a list as long as my arm of gold medalists who are like, uh, you know, just stood there, listened to the anthem and then went home. You know, if you don't enjoy the process, you will not enjoy the reward. You absolutely Mm. have to enjoy the process and you have to give up the idea that the reward will make everything better. Unless it's like, you know, that reward will bring you further opportunity in, in, you know, a particular way, but it might not. You know, I I got on this show on CBS and I thought, that's it. I'm here. People are going to kick my fucking door down and make me a TV star. No one called. No one called. It it was the biggest puff of smoke and it was awful. So you, you just have to enjoy the process. And I remember Masked Singer season one last year, we recorded a few months out from transmission. Uh, from when we aired it and you know everyone was like oh congratulations you must you know it's really really great it's number one show whatever and you, you just have to think to yourself look it's not that you don't work as hard on the shows that aren't number one if anything you work harder on the shows mm. that aren't number one you work as hard as you do on everything and then you hand it over because you don't control when the network programs it. You don't control how much promo is out of it. For all we know, we could have been scheduled to go out on a Monday night and on Saturday someone could have pulled on a, an alien mask or a robot mask and shot up a school and then we would have had to pull the whole show. You know, We have no control of any of those things. So you just have to enjoy the process. You have to enjoy the process and as much as you can, you have to try and find something that gives your life meaning. Now, for me, this particular show this is just about allowing a family to sit down and watch a TV show together. I am trying as much as I can to give families in Australia the opportunity to spend time together. And the fact that, you know, we make this big silly show with fireworks and confetti cannons and a giant sloth and all kinds of malarkey, that's all for me leading towards a family sitting together on a couch. And and that is the meaning that I have in my heart when I go out and make this show. Mm. And, as long as you I mean, take- it sounds very cheesy, but as long as it works for you to get to get the job done, then it's functioning, I suppose. Cheesy for you, you cynical bastard. But, <laughs> but it's true. Like we're bringing, true. but you know, anytime I hear someone be like, you know, what my what my company is about is about really bringing people together. The reason why we make these like uh, toilet polishing uh, scoops is because I think the whole family can get around and polish toilets with my scoops better than I'm like, okay, 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 Lothario, I get it. It's fine. You can just toilet polishing scoop. That'd be pretty good. You can just have a toilet polish. But I take your I take your point that there's a I mean, this is all a bit we we should put it probably add the caveat. This is this is all a very privileged kind of conversation because there are a lot of people who wanted to be doing what you're doing and were ninety nine point nine percent as good uh or maybe a hundred and one percent you know, as good and slightly better, but for whatever reason, because of their look or their, the time that they were coming in or out of the industry or something, maybe they, you know, they didn't have the opportunity to be miserable while they were making tons of money and doing lines of cocaine on the, the grand piano. Oh, don't worry, I lost all that money. Don't worry, all that money went away. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. You don't have to Let's worry talk about, about that. Because the, the thing that's interesting is, I mean, you're, you're, what you're saying is all this wise stuff. I mean, it's 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 so wise that it's almost banal to say that, like, you have to enjoy the process, you have to stop yeah. and smell the roses. Um, I mean, in a good way, in a way that, like, the Buddha is banal, you know, because you go like all you need is love. Yes, okay, we get it. But what but what that means in practice and how you find 
how you grope your way towards actually incorporating it into your daily life. I mean, you, we're talking about this 2003 Idol premiere. It yeah. was another seven years before you got sober. Yes. And you probably knew at the time that it was unfulfilling. Uh, drinking, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and acting up in all kinds of ways. Um, do you remember in, in, in 2010 I sat in on your LA radio show Yeah, one night? Yes, I do. I was thinking about that just before I got on the phone with you, yeah. Do you have any recollection of whether that was before or after you got sober? What? Do you remember when it was you were in Los Angeles? Well, I moved to LA for a year from New York at the end of 2009, and I left in uh, about October of 2010. So assuming that it was in the first few months of when I moved, then you wouldn't have been sober because you got sober Mm -hmm. in March. I got sober in March, so that would have been the very end of it. That would have been in the the Vicodin day day drinking times. Mm. Yeah, wasn't great. (laughs) Mm. It's amazing that, you know, I mean, we weren't close, but when I think back to that and I then I read what you were going through and I think how, I mean, it makes me actually really sad how when I realise how futile and how much of a barrier there is between all of us, really, that, I you know, we could have been chatting and... You could be like, oh, come along, and I could sit there and you could do a whole show and we could part ways. And I'd have no idea that you're going to get up the next morning and crack a beer, drink through the entire day, live in a self-judgmental hellhole. Yes. And you can't tell me about it. All the best drinkers are like that, mate. All the very best, the very best drinkers are the ones that hide it from everyone else and make it look like it's just all a part of it. Um. You know, that, that's, that's the very best ones do mm-hmm. it. Uh, and that's just, you know, that's just it. You know, that's, and I, I came to learn that so much of my drinking had been. Um, so my, and I, and I got told this, you know, if, if early on in sobriety, I got told, look, if you put half as much effort into how much fandanglery you used to, how many hoops you used to jump through so you could get high and loaded, if you put half as much effort into that, you'll be fine in this sobriety thing. Mm. Uh, uh, and because I, I used to, you know, like make sure I would uh, book a flight. Oh, hang on, no, the bar, the, the airport's not open there, so I'll move there and I'll pay for a hotel and I'll fucking do this and do that. And Explain that to us because that's quite funny. And honestly, to, to be perfectly honest, it's something I've done as well. I think <laughs> it's something a lot of people have done, and I think this is probably telling about Australia's drinking culture. Yeah, you know, you've got a you've got a morning meeting in uh, in Melbourne. You can get the the six a.m. flight down from Sydney. This is obviously pre pandemic. Uh, or, you know, or I can get the flight down the 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 night before. The Qantas Club will be will be serving booze. I can have a couple of cocktails on the plane. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can get to the. I can go down. I can have a nice meal. Like, and you rationalise it to yourself that way, but you don't realise oh, that part of my friend. Yeah, I'll be yeah. yeah. I'll catch up with the, okay, for that, part of the appeal is that you get to get tanked the night before. Yeah, and then you're late to the meeting anyway because you're hungover. <laughs> I only had to get. To, it took me twenty minutes to get here, but I turn up just smelling like disgust. And shame, um, and yeah, but that's you know that's that's all that's all a part of it, and um, you know some people get to have a couple of drinks and not, and then go, oh, I'm going home now. Me, I would explain it's like it's like anyone with a peanut allergy, right? Even the smallest amount of peanut will set off a, an allergic reaction in their body, where even the smallest trace amount can be enough to make them very very sick, if not die. 
all right, it'll put a change their body in a physiological way, their, their esophagus, what if they can't breathe properly is horrible, right? Similarly, even the tiniest amount of alcohol sets off an allergic reaction in my, in my body where um, I can no longer make a good decision about how much is a good amount to drink. I, I no longer feel the same way about what I think is right and wrong and things that I would normally have thought was a terrible idea now become a great idea and I am completely not in control of that and mm. that changes my body and my brain completely. And so as as a result of that, once I recognize that, I'm like, oh, okay, then, well, I might just not drink and <laughs> then we'll see how it goes. I've, I've heard this uh, this articulation of it from other people who've gone through 12-step programs and, and it's interesting and whatever works for people is is great. I mean, I have alcoholism in my family and and – well, I should say borderline alcoholism because I also don't think that the term is particularly useful because I basically think that, I mean, you were just saying that you're sort of allergic to alcohol because when you take it, it makes you do stupid things. Oh, sure, that's what alcohol does to everybody. It makes them do yes. stupid things. And the number of people who actually can happily drink one or two drinks and then feel no desire to have more I sometimes wonder if you actually dig down to a lot of people, people say, well, of course I'm not going to have more because I have responsibilities so I don't want to, you know, or either I'm going to drive or, you know, there, there are kids or something like that. I think a lot of what a lot of people are going through in their relationship to alcohol is mildly dysfunctional. I would, the- I would agree with you, but I think the difference there, the difference is, Josh, is that it no longer becomes a choice. It's no longer I might have a couple of beers. It's I have to fucking have beers. Mm. I- absolutely have to have beers. You don't even realize you're doing that. You're like, and it could be to the point of like, and not that it was for me at the time, but I have heard stories and I know it's like, like yes, I know the kids need to be picked up from school. I understand that it's my turn to go and get my son from netball or whatever, Mm. right? And I have to have a beer. And so Mm. I'm at the pub having a beer, answering the phone from my wife going, how come I just got a call from Billy who's waiting by himself at the courts? Um, Mm. You had to go pick him up. It's like, yeah, I knew that and I had to have a beer and beer became more important. And that, that for me is the delineation, all right? Mm. That's, a, that's, an, that's a broad example of it's when you no longer have a choice, when the, the need to have a drink it starts becoming more important than every single th- other thing in your life. Mm. And that's what began to happen to me. And even knowing full well it was very bad, and dysfunctional, and it was destroying my relationship. It actually it had already destroyed my relationship. It hadn't just ended. It just ended later. Um, you know, destroying my career. I knew all of this stuff to be true, but yet I could not stop. I absolutely could not stop. I was powerless to stop. And that, I think, for me, is the is the difference. Do you remember what you were thinking? Do you remember how it would, like, the the drag that the that the booze has on you or that whatever it is that you that you're about to take has on you in the moments before you have it is yeah. not a, a negative compulsion i don't think is it, it there must be a sense of like oh now i get to imbibe my special treat or now i get to let my hair down or now i get to do oh, yeah. this naughty thing or now i get to do the, now i get to not have to be responsible for all the other things in my life or now i like what does it look like in the moments before you all use? of those things all of those things and everything's going to be better as soon as i have this beer everything all this pain all this noise all this fear all this worry everything's going to go away so i've really got to have this beer i can't handle feeling about this or feeling about that or like it's all an avoidance behavior all right for me um whether it be drinking or gambling or at one point in my life porn it was always 
an, an avoidance behavior, right? How can I get out of feeling this awful feeling in my body? What can I do to escape this icky feeling inside me? Ah, beer. And it lit, it, it, it did go away for about three seconds. As soon as I had that first twig, it goes away for about three seconds. And then you just kind of plunge. I personally, I just kind of plunge into a pit of shame for like, oh, fuck, now I'm having a drink. And it's like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday. Mm. What have I become? And then, oh, you know what's good for feeling like that? It's more drinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you yep. just go into numbing mode, right? It's Homer um, Simpson saying beer is the is the solution to and the cause of all of life's problems. They are a very clever set of writers on The Simpsons. They are very, very, very clever set of writers on The Simpsons. And recognizing that is a, is, is a, is a very important part of, of eventually trying to get yourself better. And, and was it the same sort of appeal for other drugs? What did you like about cocaine? Oh, everything's a great idea after a quarter bottle of Grey Goose or a six-pack of beer. Cokes, you know, there's always something so very romantic about it, you know, very Tony Montana, very fucking, you know, you saw it in all the movies and, you know, you heard stories about all your favorite bands doing it. But look, look, let's be honest, like, God, now I've seen like every episode of Narcos. Um, <laughs> so um, were you, you, were, you weren't addicted, were you, were, were you not a compulsive addicted user of cocaine? No, it was just always around. Look, yeah, right. How, it was just you were a rock star, and, and so you, that's on, what you when do. When you're on the highest rating television show in the country in the history of television, um, you don't need to buy drugs. They're just there. They're just mm. everywhere. And oh, hey, look, I left something in the bathroom for you. Oh, come back, come back to the little, you know, little room in the back of the pub here. I've got something to show you from the security footage. You'll never believe the fight we had the other night. Come and look at this. Oh, what's the daisy? What's this on the table here? Um, you know, all that kind of stuff would just happen all the time. And don't mind if I do. And, you know, I was always, you know, a, a couple deep, a couple of beers deep by the time that happened. And Does it still crop up? Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. Um, and it's I don't not- mean you're using. I just mean how – because you're still in those same circles. And so you're still – I mean, I guess everybody's aware of your backstory now, but there haven't been blunders where people who don't know are just like, oh, come on, have a line? Hell no. No, 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 no. And I just tend – I'm also, you know, a, a bit more skilled at my sobriety these days is just not putting myself in situations where that sort of thing will happen. Um, that's all – you know, that, that's a, a big a big part of, of staying sober is to make sure that you don't put yourself in harm's way, um, you know, at least not with that backup. And – Look, what what eventually happens is like even like even so, Josh. You know, like I'm, and this is like as honest as as honest as I can be. You know, I'm in an apartment in stage four lockdown in Melbourne, and I'm here for I don't know three and a half weeks. Right? There's a bottle shop at the downstairs in my building here. Right? No one would know if I was to go down there and grab a carton. No one would have to know. My wife, my kids, no one, no one I work with would need to know. All right, that I'm having some beers. And I could get away with it completely in total secrecy, all right? And yet I know that it is a incremental thing and it is a very slippery slope and it it wouldn't be next week, it wouldn't be next month, but I know for an absolute fact that everything that I've built, everything that I've recreated, everything I've clawed back from the, the, the jaws of, you know, shame of, of losing everything losing a house you know being unemployed just you know losing everything everything that i've rebuilt since then would vanish and there is no beer 
that is so goddamn tasty, it's worth losing my family, losing everything I've put together. So you end up, what happens is like literally, like it sounds cheesy, it's going to sound real cheesy, but you you build a fortress of resilience, a brick at a time, and each one of those bricks is by spending a day not using or drinking, right? And you end up building this fortress and it gets stronger every day and you build it so big and you build this life upon this fortress. Like, you know, we I own a home now. Like I've gone from renting <laughs> in a country, paying rent out of my savings in a foreign country. How did you lo- – you just said that you lost your house. How did you lose your house? Oh, there's this magical thing called divorce that uh, – <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that yeah, that one. Right, okay. So the booze leads well, to divorce, leads to losing house. Yeah, a, big, right. a big showgirl stood and went, ta-da! <laughs> and I was like <laughs> – Big puff of smoke, and it all went away. Um, and um, you know, every, everything that you you rebuild in sobriety around, uh, you know, relationships with family that had to get repaired, and you had to go in, and you had to say, and and do some really serious amends. And look, I really understand that when I was using this, this is how I made might have made you feel, and and then earning that trust back and rebuilding those relationships with family and with friends, and and then re un, like really underscoring in yourself what it is that led you to drink and why you wouldn't escape, and then building a relationship, an intimate romantic relationship with someone like my wife Audrey, and then getting to a point. And with Georgia as well, my, my stepdaughter, and then, you know, rebuilding my my trust with, you know, people who, who you know, are the gatekeepers of who gets to be on TV shows, um, rebuilding my trust with them so that they could trust me to be on TV again. And then, you know, putting all this stuff back together. And then, you know, obviously we now, we now, we, I own a house now with what, with what Audrey and we have a house and, you know, we've got a new baby and, you know, build, you build a life in sobriety that is so fucking valuable. Even though I could completely get away scot-free by having a drink downstairs, I know that all that would vanish and it is mm. 100% not worth it. There well, you couldn't no- get away scot-free. There's no I mean, you could get away scot-free in the, in the short term, but in the long yeah. term, there's no, there's no escaping you end, it. You end up building a life in sobriety that you're not willing to lose. And so even if someone says, listen, I just got off the plane from a private plane from Columbia. I didn't get searched from customs. I have this beautiful gram of fresh, super pure cocaine, and here's a bottle of Grey Goose. I'd be like, good for you. Way you go. No, it's not – Never, there's there's nothing that someone could put in front of me that would be better than what I have with my family, and that's it. You just that's lovely. Um, you just mentioned rebuilding trust with TV executives mm-hmm. as part of your of your recovery process, um, and I, I think it's interesting that you know you got the along with the rock and roll lifestyle of drinking and doing drugs came the ego cockiness oh, of yeah. being of being a big star and yeah. you you almost got yourself fired from idol by uh, by firing your own manager and then yeah. demanding twice as much money as they were willing to give you so they were like you can go and get stuffed we'll just let Ricky Lee host it and you had to come back exactly. and humbly work for for much less than you'd previously been earning yeah. now now with a third a third co-host and you also yeah. you also declined um the biggest loser yeah because you wanted to be in the states and you were going to yeah. conquer the world and so yeah. You know that that in which at the time could have been a way of extending your franchise onto another hugely successful show. Yeah. Um, you told them to to get fucked. Can you explain that headspace to us? Um, I guess you know in the same way that we said that Homer said it, it's the solution to and the cause of all of life's problems being alcohol. 
I would also say that uh, ego is the, um, you know, taming of ego is a solution to the causing of all the last problems caused by the untamed ego. Mm. And um, I just self-will run riot, just my ego just refusing to admit reality or accept reality, accept what is real and accept what is true and, and, and be able to see what opportunity actually lies before me and that everything I actually really did want was being given to me. Um, I still remember exactly where I had that phone conversation. I was getting out of a cab next to the um, – Pellegrini's this cafe here in Melbourne on the other side of town where they make a fantastic minestrone that I can't eat anymore because I'm celiac, but they used to make a really good minestrone. And I was getting there, I was going there to get a minestrone. I remember hanging up the phone to Tim Klukas at the time and going, Yeah, no, nah, mate, no, nah, I'm not, there's no way I'm going to do that. This is the biggest um, loser conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I told him it was because I wanted to pursue a career in America, but the truth was. I was still so ashamed of how fat I was when I was a young man. I was thinking, like, if they put me on The Biggest Loser, they're going to want to put my before photos up there. And I am so terrified of anyone seeing me when I was fat that I will say no to this job. And that's kind of, you know, it was kind of like a 50-50, to be honest. Mm. I was so ashamed of my body, so ashamed of my body, that I I absolutely 100% didn't want people to realise that you know, that's what my life was. And uh, you know, I used to be like 112 kilos. And, and the show went on to run for 11 years and you could have had you could have had Idol and Biggest Loser. Uh, that, that's a lot of houses. You can buy a lot of houses with 11 yeah, years yeah, of posting yeah, Biggest Loser. Yeah, it truly is. But, you know, the decisions we make, are, you know, we are a product of our choice. Choice and consequences is basically all. That's what life is, choices and consequences. And, mm. you know, we are we are free to make the, f- the former and we are, we are loath to accept the latter. <laughs> but... What life is <laughs> at the end of the the last century, which sounds dramatic now. So you were a, a you're a, a Channel V VJ. This is before Australian Idol exists, before any of the pop pop idol franchises uh, exist, and you're going on occasional trips to the US to um, on essentially junkets to interview people. In September of 2001, you're in New York City. I was. Uh, where were you staying? Uh, we were at um, Midtown, like 50th, mm. 51st. And you were in Washington, D.C. on the 10th of September we uh, 2001. You were going to fly up on the morning of 9-11 uh, we and, uh, and instead you got the train up on, on September 10th. And um, we, thought, we thought, you know what, we'd rather have a night in New York. It's a three-hour train ride or whatever. How about we take the train, we'll go and have another, we'll have a big night out in New York City, we'll get on it and then we'll do this interview tomorrow and then we'll get out of here. And then you were going to be flying home to Australia on September 11th. That right, that's right. That night. That what happened? Um, I mean, I ge- I'm generally familiar with the overall uh, <laughs> sequence of events. With what happened that morning? Uh, <laughs> uh, we went out. We had a cracking dinner. Um, we had a really good night, and then the next morning, around eight thirty, I heard what I thought was a garbage truck going by, which woke me up. Like, oh, okay, I got up, had a wee, sat down. And at the time, this is a million years ago, so nearly 20 years ago, so I had all these VHS tapes with me that I would um, record American television on. You know, back then I was really interested in other TV formats of, mm. you know, what 
going around the world because there was no YouTube. It was so exotic to travel before YouTube existed because everything was so different. All the ads were different. Like, you know, a a teenager now is familiar with like the contours of a general American ad if they're living in Australia. Whereas I remember getting to the States for the first time and the ads are just so different. The voiceover styles are so different. The way that they're shot is so different. They're so much more cheesy. It's so, I love it. You know, just as a quick aside, I should. Simon Townsend, who was a really good friend of uh, of my dad, still is, um, who was a, a, a successful um, children's television presenter in Australia through the 80s and 90s, uh, and he was something of a mentor to to me. And he was saying that when at the peak of his fame in the 80s, he would fly first class to the United States, to New York, uh, rent the most expensive hotel room that he could find, and spend two weeks just inside the hotel room watching TV and never leave and then come back. And I thought, I, I kind of get that. Totally get that because it was fascinating. It was fascinating at the time. So I was I was really interested. I was recording the different breakfast radio, breakfast television shows, um, which I thought were really interesting uh, at the time, particularly the local one, not the big. Um, so NY One, New York One, was the channel. I think I really I was really interested in that and uh, the format. And so I was record. I just you know I put a tape in. I had a wee. I put a tape in. I hit record, and about thirty five seconds after I hit record, they cut to this shot of the side of the first tower of the World Trade Center and they've got someone on the phone describing that what they just seen and I woke up my producer, Ben, and I said, hey, Ben, <laughs> I don't think we're flying back to Australia today, mate. <laughs> and then it kind of went from there, you know. It was, it was, we were trapped there for, I can't remember how many days, like a week and a half, I think. Um we all, when we eventually got back, we all we were coughing up black stuff. There was a lot of really weird shit in the air. You know, we could we could smell the fire, and it was it was horrifying. It was absolutely terrifying because you were one hundred percent sure that, you know. And and I remember Ben and Jacko, my camera guy, um, Ben Richardson. Uh, uh, by the way, is who I'm talking about. He's now the the CEO of Viacom Australia, New Zealand. Like he's a weapon. You know, mm, he's mm. an incredibly powerful TV mogul now. Um, but at the time, he was my producer on that shoot, and um, you know, I remember him saying, "Never forget the first casualty of war is the truth." And um, we were down in the hotel bar because I was still drinking back then, and uh, we were hearing all the stuff like, "Oh, don't you know, don't be near Trump Tower tomorrow at one o'clock because all oh, the Iraqis are behind this, or or whatever." You know, well, they've 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 closed all the all the tunnels. There was a bomb in every tunnel, and there was a bomb in every bridge, but they didn't tell anyone because they didn't want people to worry. Um, you know, there was all this kind of shit that we were hearing, and you know, bombs outside of hospitals and all kinds of stuff, right? And we were – because we we knew enough to know to, you know, very, very quickly the um, the mainstream media was going to get a narrative going, all right? And sure enough, by about 11 a.m. that morning, they were playing looping tapes of um, uh, Taliban training camps. Um, and it was almost like you could you could hear – the CIA guy show up at the back of the office and just hand over the DigiB to go roll this, and there was the footage, you know. Um, so we started listening. Are to you skeptical the, of it? I'm skeptical of how very quickly they went to the judgment. You know, I'm skeptical that you know within it, it became this extraordinary TV production. You know, this theatre that went on for days and days and days, and Dan Rather and and. Um, What's this? Brian Williams never going off air, and 
this really kind of like incredible moment um but how very quickly like the narrative was all very confused and then across the three major networks we were flicking around across the three major networks very quickly it went to boom that was the bad guy Mm. and and so we started listening i mean just if you were a journalist who knew about the threats that america faced and was kind of across the likely sources of mega terrorism uh, it would not be a crazy thing to start talking about the Taliban. I remember on I've still got the text. I've still got text messages from on old phones that I've kept from that era. Wow! wow. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I was quarter to ten in the evening in Sydney, and uh, and I, I I texted. Well, I was texting with a friend of mine as it was going on because I was watching it all unfold. And I'd just been in New York um, a couple of months before that, so we just actually that day I had been editing footage of me on the world trade on the top of the world trade towers for a wow. video that we we're putting together for it. Anyway, um, and I remember saying I wouldn't want to be in the in the mountains of of Afghanistan or Pakistan in the next few weeks. Right. And that was just that was just me being a teenage or whatever I was, you know, young university age yeah. person who knew a bit about geopolitics. But I, I take your point. I mean, I think to put yourself in to put myself in your shoes in that moment, what people who maybe are younger than us might not be aware of is that when something that chaotic is unfolding, it, you know, in hindsight, ten years later, you know what the kind of contours of the crisis turned out to be. But at the time, you don't know if that was it. You don't know if that's the prelude to the real thing. All you know is that something so chaotic and and tremendous and traumatizing is taking place that it could be the first salvo in a whole set of well, that's new things. That, that's 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 what we thought. So once, because uh, I was, what I was uh, kind of going with was that you know being with these two veterans, you know, um, particularly Jacko who'd covered coo- uh, coups, he'd he'd you know filmed in, and 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 Ben had been in in you know fairly bloody South Pacific, um, you know, political uh, violence. Both these guys were like. Okay, so there's a common narrative going along the major networks. We need to find, a, you know, a, a, a more decent source. Let's go figure it out. And so we started turning on the radio and we started listening to the kind of independent news radio stations that weren't owned by big conglomerates and things like that. And that was really fascinating. And that was a very, for me, a very early lesson in, you know, be aware of your sources. Be mm. aware, you know, be aware of your sources. Um, look, it was really scary. It was super, 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 super scary. It was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. I was physically fine, but I got back and I was really weird. I was really weird. And I remember being at work. I, I could do on air um, because on air I was able to flick a switch and kind of I can compartmentalize quite easily. And I was doing this kind of happy, zany kind of 4 p.m. kids request video show in the afternoons playing video clips. Um, but every other moment I was just – I could barely speak. Um, and I remember my boss, uh, incredibly, Jackie Riddell is her name, um, she walked past and she saw me. I wasn't even typing anything. I was just staring at the wall of my cubicle. She goes, are you okay? And something in me went, no, no, I'm not. And she went, would you like someone to talk to? And I said, yes. Yes, I would. And in her incredible grace, she organized through work, she organized a, a psych for me to go and speak to. And that was, I guess, the start of the, the, my adult kind of real kind of digging into what the fuck is going on with me. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, yeah, that, so and, – and similarly, that particular psych, he, he pulled out the aforementioned DSM volume four it was back then and he got me – because I could not – I said, look, I, you know, all these people died. We were walking around the streets and there was just hundreds and thousands of leaflets 
of have you seen Michael or have you seen Juanita or have you seen Jennifer or have you seen Angelica? You're like all this, like people just, we knew they were dead in the rubble, but they were photos going, have you seen them? Please tell us anything. And it was awful. It was so bad. And I'm like, I didn't die. I didn't get hurt. Like I coughed up black shit, but that's the only thing that happened to me. And I, I don't have any right to feel bad. And he said, he opened, he's like, fuck, he handed me the book. And he said, just read that. Read that out loud to me. And it was the markers of someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder. And only reading it out loud was like, oh, okay. And I, of the, I don't know, 15 presenting symptoms or whatever, I had 14 of them. <laughs> he's mm. like, do you get it now? Mm. Like, okay, I guess, I guess I do. I just, felt, I just felt so, at the same time, I felt very ashamed that I was physically completely fine, but I was so damaged by what had happened. It's not how PTSD works. It's not, no. it's not about how physically, how, whether you're physically fine or not. No. Um, and when, so you talk about about how, you know, when Manhattan was was cut off and you couldn't get off the island, uh, there were rumours that the, that the terrorists had, had planned that and then they were going to detonate a, a nuke or yeah. something on Manhattan or oh, yeah. there were dirty bombs and nerve gas and, and your, yeah. that your anxiety and panic just leapt up so high that you know that you were going to be annihilated in a nuclear blast or something that you essentially yeah. just fell asleep. Uh, yeah, my body shut down. And I, I had a, I when had a you nap. woke up, your mates were standing over you with a six pack of beer, and uh, and the party began. Yeah. Do you think that that how do you contextualize that entire traumatizing experience with the rest of your mental wellness? Like, is 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 it possible that that was a good thing insofar as it was a catalyst that got you to see a therapist and get diagnosed? Is it possible that that was a bad thing that tipped you from being functional to non-functional? Probably both, you know, probably both. I was I was lucky that I had made contact with someone who helped me in such a great way, and he really did, that particular, Phil was his name, good fella. He helped me a lot, but he really did open my eyes to the concept of um, – Things are only the way they are because you decide of it. If you decide to feel differently about it, it will make you feel differently and you have the power to change how you feel about it mm. with your brain, if your brain is healthy. And knowing those concepts really helped. But as I continued to put, um, you know, vast quantities of marijuana and, and alcohol and, uh, and the occasional cocaine into my brain and just fucked up the neural pathways that were already becoming pretty dodgy, um, and just basically hit go and push push the gas down on on what was already a, a precipitous um, kind of pathway. Um, yeah, I really hit the accelerator on what was happening in my brain, and and so at one point, you know, I'm, that was the start of because there was a lot of drinking to try and feel not feel how horrible that was. Mm. There was a lot of drinking that that came off the back of that, and that was the start of the really serious adult drinking that I got into. Mm. Um, but there was also that that concept that you know uh, I was able to be if I put the work in I was able to control how good or bad my day was. That was a very powerful thing to learn. But and how long after nine eleven did you see the therapist? Oh, mid October. By the time we got back, oh, I was right, so hard. quickly within within a few months. Yeah. Oh yeah, well, a couple of weeks. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Because I mean, I'm just sort of trying to line up the timelines here and. 
find causes for things that maybe don't have causes, but I like to try to make sense of the world because that's what my brain does. Again, I'm thinking. As you mentioned, though, but as you mentioned though, Josh, everything is incremental. It's not like one day he was fine and the next day he was crazy. No, everything yeah. is just like, it's it's like what I mentioned before about the kind of fortress of, of resilience around sobriety. The same thing happens with, you know, drinking and using and or, 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 unhealthy behavior or unhealthy attitudes towards particular things or rigid thinking or things like that, slowly but surely you you dismantle the boundary that you have between you and reality and slowly but slowly but slowly but you're taking it apart brick by brick by brick by brick and then one day you take away one, many, one too many bricks and now suddenly everything that's frightening on Facebook is real and everyone of a particular skin color is terrifying mm. and you start making all these really weird decisions and, and things that have nothing to do with reality but- you're no longer able to understand that because as far as you're concerned, it's completely real. And and by that point, you've already slipped off the edge. And um, But there was, you know, probably months, if not years before that where, you know, it all goes back to. And I think this is why it's super important in many ways to understand that mental health is just health. It's like physical health. Um, having been on the cover of Men's Health magazine, I can tell you that you don't accidentally get a six-pack. You have to... <laughs> You have to work really, really hard and watch every single thing you put in your body, and you have to lift the weight. And but the concept of physical fitness is 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 you know to anyone that's listening, they will know that if you maintain, even if if you go and walk twenty minutes a day, all right. If for whatever reason you now have to, one of the kids doesn't want to walk, and then you now have to carry the kid, and you have to walk and carry a kid for forty minutes, you'll be able to handle it because you've got a bit of resilience built up. But if you haven't been doing any exercise and you go to, I don't know, the Royal Show or the Ecker or whatever it is, what you used to do in pandemic, pre-pandemic, and one of your kids doesn't walk around, and you've got to carry the kid around, you'd be like, mommy's got to put you down. I just can't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Papa, Papa yeah. needs a rest. Papa needs you know, a horn dog. Yeah. You, you know how quickly that goes away if you don't maintain it. And so similarly, if you don't maintain your mental health through practices like Practicing gratitude, which is a scientifically proven way to train your brain to search for the positive in things and 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 actually has scientific evidence backing it. Uh, same with journaling and 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 writing, you know, say, for example, doing a fear dump in the morning, these sort of things. Oh, that sounds weird. It sounds weird, but it's, it works. It's like doing sit-ups in your brain. It builds this resilience so that when weird shit happens like, I don't know, you get fired or someone at work does, doesn't pull their weight on a project and you've got to, you know, pull through or there's a fucking pandemic and you don't know what's going to happen. You have a bit more resilience to deal with these things, but it is very, very similar to physical fitness, but it just, it doesn't take much, but you do have to do it every day. Do you keep a gratitude diary? Oh, absolutely. Every morning. Mm. Every morning. Okay, what I'll, was the I'll, other one you said? A fear, a, a fear yeah, catalog. Yeah, I, do, I do fear and resentment every morning. I, I, I call it taking out the trash. Mm. Um, Every morning I wake up and kind of before my prefrontal cortex has successfully kind of come online and is able to rationalize whatever the fuck's going on in my brain. Um, as someone who has, you know, generalized anxiety, I often wake up with a whole bunch of irrational fear. All right. And I just I just write it all down. Mm. I write it all down, write it all down, write it all down. And then I look at it and go, well, what are the things that I can control? Oh, this and this and this. What about that? I, I, do I control global energy policy? No, I don't actually control global energy policy. Okay. I'm just going to have to accept where we are with that. Okay, then. And, and like, here's the things that I can, you know, be in acceptance of and here's the things that I can change. Um, okay, great. And then a, a gratitude list is, you know, it, it's often often ends up being the same thing if you keep writing things you're grateful for. So um, one trick I've heard is to um, I, I just generally write things that went really well yesterday that I'm happy about. Mm. What went really well? 
uh, you know, so yesterday for me, what did I do? I, I rode 160 Ks on my bicycle yesterday. I rode a, a, an Imperial Century, I rode 100 miles, and uh, a person on Instagram uh, came on on a, on a bicycling platform that I rode my bike on, um, came on and rode with me and helped me get through the last 40 Ks. That was really cool. I really, I was really grateful for that, that a complete stranger helped me out, you know, and, and you know, oh, I've made a really yummy stir fry. It was really good. The mushrooms were really good, really good texture in that. And it may sound benign, but you, what you're doing is you're training your brain. It's like before you had kids, Josh, you never noticed anyone with a pram. As soon as you knew you were going to, there was a baby coming to the mm. house, all you see is prams. Yeah. Okay. So you're training your brain to do that, but with good things happening. And you train your brain and train your brain. So eventually you actually do notice far more good things than bad things. And it's actually quite quite effective. One thing that's admirable about you, Osher, and I don't know if this is luck or uh, or work, is my abs. Is that what you're gonna say? <laughs> Is your abs. Uh, that's the end of the episode. Uh, thank you very much. No. Uh, <laughs> all I wanted to do was get in a, a compliment about your abs. No, it's the ability to, to to switch off or quieten the little worm that lurks in most people's heads that says, oh, you should do that, but nah. Because you're talking in ways that make total sense and – Everybody listening to this probably knows that it would be that they'd be a happier person if they wrote a gratitude diary, and everybody listening to this probably knows that they'd be uh, a better person if they went for long bike rides and long walks, and they don't because there's a little worm in their brain that goes, "Well, you could, or you could have a cookie and watch TV." Do you not have that, or do you control it? I do have that. I have it very, very powerfully because that's the thing that you, that's the thing that says that's the fuck it. You know, I get that, and I have learned the very, very simple thing I've learned is that if you get that, oh, I really couldn't be fucked. I really don't feel like going to this see this person, or I really just, I don't care about going to the gym. If that comes into your brain, then you absolutely have to do it because that is the unwell or. Um, malfunctioning or um, uh, 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 unhealthy decision-making part of your brain gaining power over your actual want to be healthier or have a good, you know, social connections or keep maintain a friendship mm. or maintain a relationship with someone that you care about. Is, the, um, is that, I mean, you said that that's the fuck it bit. I'm, I'm not sure it is. Like there's a little fuck it. There's a little, oh, there's just, oh, fuck it. But, then, but when you were doing your fuck it's, you, your, your fuck it's were going for gold. Like, yeah. you know, there's like, which I think is not just a, a difference in, in, in scope, but also actually is a different thing. Like going out and getting absolutely shit-faced in a way that could kill you is a different thing from being like, but I'm so cozy in my bed watching Netflix. Uh, I don't know. It's, it has, it's, it's, on a, it's on a sliding scale, I think. It's on the same, the same graph but at different ends of the, of the spectrum. But I would say the really simple way to, ha- to change that Josh, is to the moment that you feel that thought, then that is the signal that you go recognize and go, oh, oh, that's the unhealthy decision-making part of my brain. Mm. That's the probably, you know, unwell, perhaps if I've been doing it for a while, the chronically unwell part of my brain. Um, And if I let it win, it will get stronger. And the next time that this happens, it will be even harder to overcome. And it'll gain gain so much inertia that I'll never actually be able to reach escape velocity from the decision to never do anything. So the simplest thing is like, what is the smallest, smallest step I can take towards a thing that I want to do? I want to exercise. Okay, I will put on my shoes. Okay, 
What's the next thing? I will tie them up. Okay, and I will walk out the front door. I'm here now. Put on a podcast, go for a walk. All right, and that's the signal. The moment you get that feeling, that's the signal like, okay, fuck it, now I have to. Because if you let it win, it will just get stronger and it'll be harder next time. How present are you during your your life these days? Because there's a you write an anecdote that <clears throat> that uh, I very much identified with in your book about your first wedding um, when you were in Israel and it was this huge event, uh, an Israel an Israeli wedding, and you were overwhelmed and you were terrified by the scale of the day and you emotionally detached from it and you sort of felt like you were an observer, you were like a third party at your own wedding. And I had I had that and I have that whenever. I mean, I have that also. I don't think that's totally dissimilar from what you're describing about when you're in the zone on when you're performing, for example, this kind of almost almost an out-of-body type of experience where you don't have any, there's no traction between your subjective experience of the world and what's actually going on around you. You're kind of floating through it. I disagree with you, man. You? Like yeah, that, talk to me about uh, that. Two very, very different things. They're two very different things. The first thing you described was me being so emotionally overwhelmed um, that I did not know how to engage with the situation and so numbness was what prevailed. Um, the second thing you're talking about is a beautiful state of flow where me and the 60-something people that I'm working with on this particular production are all moving in beautiful harmony like we're a, a perfectly choreographed ice skating duo pulling off a perfect 10. And there is just a, a bliss and timelessness in those fleeting moments that um, is just wonderful. Uh, and they're two, they're two very, very, very different things. As far as how engaged I am day to day, I know that my brain does particular things and it wants to uh, obsess and so to a point where I'm, I am unable to control it. So like a, like a 10-year-old boy, my wife has my screen time passcode and I cannot look at Instagram or Twitter or Facebook on my phone. It, I can't even navigate to the website. I can't install the apps. Um, and Wait, I know how do you, I, how do you How are you not able to go to the app store on your phone? Uh, well, if, it op- if, it, if I install the app, it won't open. Uh, it'll be like it'll lock lock me out. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is possible. Yeah, is this a child yeah. safety thing? Yes, it's designed to stop kids from doing exactly what I can't stop myself from doing. That's great. We yeah, yeah. Like that. So she, Audrey, has my screen time passcode, and so I, I, I can't, I can't just sit there zombie scrolling through for Instagram on my phone mm. because I was losing hours and hours of my day and people would talk to me and I couldn't remember what they were saying to me. I'm like, but the fucking, there's a donut here or there's a, you know, the bloke doing some weightlifting thing or mm. there's a you know picture of a surfer doing something cool or there's a bicycling, usually bicycling, someone doing something cool and none of that matters. None of it mm. fucking matters. What matters is the human beings in the same fucking room as you. And certainly as mm, Wolfgang, as Georgia and Wolfgang got older, Georgia got older and as Wolfgang came along, I'm like, I have to do something about this. And I know that it's, it's the abstinence model. It's like, I know I can't control it, so I have to just not have it. Mm. And that's what it is. I now am in an incredibly fortunate situation where I actually, I, I pay someone to look after my Instagram for me. Mm. I don't and I mean, it. again, when you say that you're not in a position to be able to handle it responsibly the way that other people can, I, I loop back to my skepticism earlier about how many of us are good at handling alcohol as well. Uh, you know, you are an all or nothing guy. So you have the discipline to be able to impose conditions on your own behavior and the temperament to find liberation in doing so. Uh, but nobody is using these 
apps functionally. Nobody is using these apps without consequence, just as nobody is drinking without consequence. The, the tug of addiction, and I'm not saying this is not to diminish alcoholism or, you know, serious substance abuse or, or addiction, addiction to things like gambling or, or Instagram or whatever, but it, there is a slippery slope. Now, there may, there may be a precipice at the end of that slippery slope that you've fallen off, but every, yeah. all of us are all of us are grappling with the attention hogging uh, greediness of algorithms. Oh, they are so extraordinarily specifically. Designed. It's a poker machine in your pocket. There's a you'd probably be more familiar with this than with this than me. There was a professor at Stanford in the computer science division who wrote a book. Uh, hooking or hooking mine. I can't remember the name of it, but it was almost like a cautionary tale of like, don't do this with your software. Don't use variable rewards. Don't use, you know, this sort of thing. This is the exact model that um, the human cannot, their willpower cannot escape the, 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 the black hole tug of this kind of programming. And they went, fucking brilliant, Farmville. Candy Crush. Um, Let's do it. Very, the very same people went great, and they took it as a as an instruction manual, and that's why we now have these. Like Candy Crush is one of the most sinister fucking programs. It's the most. It's so. It's a perfectly designed attention. Like you, literally, you're a, you are uh, you're you are a pigeon in a Skinner box pecking at a mm. fucking thing. Mm. You know, because you can't stop. Because it is perfectly designed, and and at times it gets better. The more you play it, the better it gets your timing, and the better it knows how much to give you. It's just insidious. It's amazing. I mean, you were saying earlier, Osha, that like you know, the the lesson of wisdom for you through therapy was learning to live in the now and not to worry about the past and and fear the future, uh, or you know, just to be present. It strikes me as you're talking about Candy Crush that. These are systems that are intentionally designed to remove us from the now by Absolutely. creating comfortable, rewarding scenarios that are d- detached from what's actually going on around us. And I guess we, I mean, we can wrap up here, but I, I you know, the reason I'm interested is because everyone know again, it's one of these things that everybody knows. Everybody knows that the Buddha was right when he was saying that you should be present, that there is only the now, that the past is history and the future is just a maybe. So you, you have to, you have to be in the moment. And yet, as you say, we all willingly, almost all of us, not you carry around in our pockets, things that are tailor-made to remove us from the now. And, so has your experience of grappling with serious and severe and crippling uh, mental conditions given you insight into what other mortals who don't suffer from them should do to lead happy lives? Um, I can't speak to other I can't speak to other people, Josh. I can only speak to myself. Well, you can speak to them. Well, for I can't speak for All other right, people. Fair enough. I can only speak for what has worked for me. And um what has worked for me is understanding that um, actions in accordance with my values combined with accepting things that are beyond my control is and, and doing things for others is the key to me feeling this beautiful, warm glow inside of my body which I believe some people may refer to as happiness. Happiness is not a goal. It's not an actual thing that is permanent. It is a, f- is a fleeting moment. And 
the, the most important thing to understand, I think, Josh, is that happiness is one of the part of the spectrum of human emotion. It, but you have to be in acceptance that, like physics is a is physics. You can't have one particular polarity inside uh, uh, an, an atom be larger than another. There has to be a balance between the nuclei. Otherwise, it will split apart, and you know the space time will crumble. Um, you cannot have happiness without sadness. You cannot have love and devotion without fear of being alone. You cannot have joy without you know with without tragedy. This is what it is to be human. Uh, Susan David, the extraordinary psychologist Susan David says, uncomfortable feelings are the price of admission we pay to enjoy a meaningful life. And accepting that and, you know, and don't get me wrong, man, I work fucking hard to make sure that I stay in the present moment. It's really hard. I have a a doom-centered brain that just tries to catapult me into the future and decide how terrible things are going to be. And I have to work really, really hard to suck myself back into the, into the room and go, right, no, I'm here on my bike or I'm with the kids or I'm making this food or I'm eating this delicious mushroom that I last that I cooked last night. You know, it's it's a, it's work. It's work every day, but it's what works for me. And as long as you can understand that, that it's it, it happiness isn't a thing that once I get that, then I'll be happy. Mm. Which is what we talked about, you know, at the start of this conversation. Like it's unattainable. It's un- it's not it's not how it works. It's a it's a it's a feeling that you feel inside your body. It's a bunch of neurochemicals that get released at the same time that you go, ah and then it goes away, and then you, it gets replaced with hunger, or like, oh, my football team didn't win, or oh, the dogs vomited on the floor again, or you know, whatever. Mm. <laughs> you know? And just everything is everything is nothing until we decide what it's going to be. You know, everything is what it is we decide it is, and we have the if our brains are healthy, we decide what that gets to be, and that's the real superpower we have as humans, man. It really is. What's it all about then, Osha? Is there a point? Yeah, it's helping other people and understanding that we are hardwired. We wouldn't have got here if we weren't hardwired for cooperation. We wouldn't have got here if we were only about, I'm only about myself, I'm going to murder everybody else. Like there has to be cooperation. Even if you're in the the, the murdery tribe, you still have to cooperate with each other, right? We're about cooperation. Murderers unite is your your message. MU, you should see the sticker, it's great. Um, You... We are we're hardwired to to cooperate. Um, Rutger Bregman wrote a, a great book called Humankind, and he yeah. has this theory on the um, survival of the friendliest. Um, understand that it's in our brains to want to help other people, because that is the thing that makes us in our bodies go, "Ah, oh, that feels nice," and it does. So go ahead and do it. Because that's all we're here for. We really are just atoms talking to each to another atom. I'm just a bunch of atoms. I'm a bunch of this what used to be a star put together in a particular way, talking to you. Um, and we are. I think our sun is one of 400 billion suns in our edge of the Milky Way. There's a lot there of them. Are, There's a lot of them. You could probably do away with a couple of them, and God wouldn't even notice. We are so infinitesimally in unimportant in the scale of what it is we're actually a part of. Really, absolutely nothing we do matters. You should. In the you'll want. You'll want to listen to the my episode with Sam Harris, which is coming out either immediately before or immediately after this episode. Oh, yeah. Part of the conversation with Sam is like, how does it come to pass that matter becomes like has an experience in the first place? Yeah, like the chair I'm sitting on doesn't have a get to have a chat with the 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 wooden desk sitting in front of me. No, but 
there's carbon atoms in me as much as there's carbon atoms in this, in this desk. Yeah. But my carbon atoms can have a conversation, whereas this desk is just this desk. The desk is t- a terrible conversationalist, I find. Uh, <laughs> do you is. meditate? Yes, I try to meditate every day, and it's practice like everything. And and I think the, the big misconception with med- meditation is um, that it's to be quiet. And if your brain is silent, then you're doing it right. But nobody's brain does that. Mm. No. Meditation is the if in the context of the gym, right? If you're you've got a if say you're doing a bicep curl, for example, you've got the weight down by your side and the effort is lifting the weight up to your shoulder and then putting it back down again. And that's one rep. And knowing that if you do five sets of twelve of them, the muscle will adapt and it'll be easier to make that lift. Meditation the lift is the bringing the brain back to the presence, back to the breathing or back to whatever it is you're, you're, you're trying to focus on, whether it's your breath or the, the feeling of your body against your shirt or whatever it is. That's the rep and that's what you're training your brain to do. And what that strength gives you is the opportunity to when your wife or husband or kid says something and you go, <gasps> and you get to go, hang on, I'm quite strong in this part. I can bring my brain from those thoughts back to a space and go, ah, mm. right. Now, what ha- what's going on there? Rather than going, fuck you and everything and fuck, fuck. You know, that's what meditation is. Do you have a second career chapter after television? Uh, Every hosting? show, John Ferreira, the man that I mentioned before, uh, once said to me as well, he gave me two really good things. That one I told you before and this one, which is unless you host the news, every single show in the history of television has been cancelled and your show will be cancelled too, no matter I don't care about. Bigger hit it is, one day it's not going to be there and you've got to be ready for that day. And what happens is you end up like any job, you get yourself into these situations where you have financial obligations, uh, you know, sorry, kids, you have to move schools because dad didn't think about what would happen when The Bachelor stopped going to air. Um you know, of course, there's, there's, there's a bunch of things in the pipeline. And you know as well as I do that in this business, if you're not working on whatever it's going to be next year, three years and five years from now, then you're a fool. You, I spend oh, a lot of time. Oh, am I supposed to be doing that, am I? Uh, you're doing oh. it right now. There's a lot of things that I do. There's a lot of things that I do that no one will ever see, but um, it's all a part of just like nudging, nudging the chess pieces forward on the other side of the board. Um, while the the other one's doing something shiny and, and lovely over here, knowing that when that thing when that piece eventually knocks over, I've got all these other things ready to go. But that's it. That's the nature of the game. It's, as as um, oh, I can't remember the name is he said in, in Godfather Part Two. This is the business we have chosen, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and about as ethical a business as uh, as uh, being in the mafia as well. Osher, great to talk to you. <laughs> as as always, take care, mate. I'm on the show. Thanks, man. Thank you. 